you would please turn with me in your copy of God's Word to Luke, chapter 2. Today we're going to spend our time focusing on verses 6 and 7. We began by looking at at the world events that uh, preceded the birth of Christ, uh, especially Caesar Augustus' decree that all the world would be registered. And uh, then last week we considered the family tree that Christ was born into and how by the grace of God people like us are brought into that family. Well, this morning we're going to look at the birth itself. And there's going to be a particular focus on the humanity of Christ and also the humiliation into which he is born. Let's pray and then, uh, and then read our text. Heavenly Father, would you sanctify us in the truth? Your word is truth. In this world in which we live today, this idea of truth has been changed to really mean nothing where you have your truth and I have my truth. But we know that there is one truth. It is your word. And so as it is preached, would you speak through it to your people for our good and your glory? We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to read starting in verse 1 again just for the sake of context. I'm going to read from verse 1 in chapter 2 through verse 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, And laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, We have a birth story here, and so I thought, well, I'll I'll tell you a couple other birth stories uh, as an introduction. And these are not stories from my own household You might laugh, but the birth of our two girls wasn't very stressful for me. It was really exciting, but it was also very controlled and orderly, and things never really got rowdy. That was not the case for my my younger brother, Hugh. Hugh lives in Texas. Um, He and his wife live out in Midland, And at uh, risk of telling stories on my sister-in-law, hopefully she'll just never listen to this sermon. Uh, 
So they're, they're pregnant with their first. And my sister-in-law decided that she wanted to have this baby without an epidural. I can't remember her exact reason or reasons. Uh, she just wanted the full experience of childbirth. And she got it. And so did my brother. And I remember him talking about it. And again, this is their first. He has no idea what's going on, no idea what to expect. And uh, (laughs) the sounds of his wife laboring made him very tense, like drawn bowstring tense. And he's a man that has a clean mouth. His tongue is controlled. He uses decent language. But he reported in that moment, listening to his wife labor and not being able to do anything to help, he, he wasn't able to control some of the words that uh, he, he muttered under his breath while his eyes were just wide open. And she would look at him and demand something, and he would run out in the hallway and cry out for a nurse, and the nurse would come and check her and assure him that everything was perfectly normal, and everything was perfectly normal. My sister-in-law gave birth to a beautiful little baby girl named Riley. Well, then comes pregnancy number two. Same brother, same birth plan. This time they just stayed at home a little too long. It's five o'clock in the morning. She's sitting on a large exercise ball doing her breathing thing. And Hugh is sitting at the table eating a bowl of cereal. And she says, okay, it's time to go. And so he grabs the keys and grabs her bag and helps her to the car. And they begin to drive to the hospital. And I, I can't remember the exact interaction they had in the car, but it was something of drive faster or else I'm going to have this baby in the car. Well, she didn't have the baby in the car. She had the baby under the awning outside the entrance to the emergency room. (laughs) Hugh whipped up into the parking lot, under the awning, left the car running with Lauren in it. He sprinted inside, yelled for a nurse. A nurse quickly responded, came outside to the car, and my nephew, Nathan, was delivered right there outside the emergency room door. Now, I'm not making any judgments on birth plans. I'm in no position to do that. I cannot bind anyone's conscience. That's between you and your OBGYN. But I think we can all agree that under the awning, just outside the emergency room door, isn't the optimum place to give birth. What we have before us today is not the optimum place to give birth. A stable, a, a shocking story. You know, and yet what we just read, the details that were given are bare bones. You've got this world-changing event. The, the creator putting on human flesh. And Luke describes it in this simple, matter-of-fact way. He says, and while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Well, let's work through what we do know. Joseph and Mary arrive in Bethlehem. It's about a hundred mile journey from home. Some time after they get there, Mary begins to go into labor. She begins to have regular contractions. Maybe she didn't say anything to Joseph at first, not knowing for sure if the time had really come. I mean, after all, again, this is her first pregnancy as well. Maybe this is just a passing pain. Maybe it's something else, but it doesn't pass. She comes to the realization that delivery is about to happen. That baby is coming. And she tells Joseph. And again, I'm just trying to get in Joseph's head on what his immediate thought was. Well, I've got to get her indoors somewhere so she can have this baby. Right? This is something we, we husbands know. He, he goes into urgent problem-solving mode. Right? He, he is determined, single focus. I have to find a place for Mary to deliver. Because I don't want her to give birth in a parking lot. And so he runs to the inn. Goes up to the innkeeper. Excuse me, sir. I need a room. We're about to have a baby. And what's he told? Sorry, son. We're all full. Lots of other folks in town for this registration. Don't have anywhere to put you. Well, would anyone make room for them? Was there anyone gracious enough, chivalrous enough to give up their own room for this young woman? No. No one one cared. Surely some of the other guests would would have known, would have seen them. But no one, no one offers their place. I'm trying to imagine Joseph's angst here. I mean, yes, he'd had a visit from an angel. He knew that Mary was pregnant by miracle of the Holy Spirit. He knew that the child in the womb was the Son of God. He knew all that. But he still had to find somewhere that she could rest. He had to find a place for them to stay, but there was no room for them. So where'd they go? One of the few details Luke does give us is the word manger. Mary's firstborn son is laid in a manger. And typically, what have we thought of when we hear the word manger? We think of a feeding trough, a bin that livestock eat out of. I mean, that's what we see in all our nativities. You've got Mary and Joseph in a stable and the Christ child laying in a feeding trough. Um, but I believe it's a little broader than that. I think when we see manger here, you could associate it with, with stall. 
You could associate it with, with, with stable. Luke uses this word again in chapter 13. Jesus, uh, Jesus has healed someone on the Sabbath, and this makes the Pharisees very angry at him. And Jesus says, Don't you untie your livestock from the manger on the Sabbath and lead it to get water? So what is it? This is a place where an animal is quartered. It's a place where livestock are kept. And sure, there would have been a feeding trough there, but I think this is really just a place where animals are kept. One commentator noted, there is no certain proof that the expression means anything more than that he was laid in a stable because there was no room in the house. So most likely, the innkeeper tells Joseph, I don't have room in the house, but you're more than welcome to hunker down in the stable. Go to the manger. Maybe the stall was attached to the house. Maybe it was in a courtyard outside. It may have been in a cave. Wherever it was, it wasn't in the house. It was in this uh, animal uh, stall where Mary and Joseph are forced to have the baby. All the other travelers are safe and warm inside the inn, while Joseph and Mary are forced to intrude on their animals. And there's no nurse, there's no doula, no midwife, no help, just the two of them. How do you think they felt in that moment? In my ignorant opinion, I think, you know, this might have been a good time for an angel to show up in the dark of night and encourage them and reassure them and say, hey, you haven't messed anything up. Everything is okay. Everything's going according to plan. This is supposed to happen. And yet the angel didn't come to them that night. The angel came to some shepherds just a few miles away. And Joseph's only option was to gently but urgently lead his betrothed into a stinking barnyard and find the least dirty livestock stall and help Mary as best he could. That's where she gives birth. And again, Luke is scant with uh, details, but we know what this involved. Some of you know personally. Mary and Joseph experienced human birth with all its pain, with all its blood, sweat, and tears, its overwhelming emotions, feelings of helplessness, apprehension about the immediate future, tenseness. I mean, surely as human beings themselves, they experience something of what we experience. Only with the main glaring difference that there's no nurse that Joseph could go and get. No one came out and helped Mary into a wheelchair and rolled her into a hospital and laid her down in a nice, warm, clean bed. 
Stephen Mosley paints a vivid picture of the humanity of this moment in, in, in his article, When God Was Made Vulnerable. He says, quote, If we imagine that Jesus was born in a freshly swept country fair stable, we miss the whole point. It was wretched, scandalous. There was sweat and pain and blood and cries as Mary reached up to the heavens for help. The earth was cold and hard. The smell of birth mixed with the stench of manure and acrid straw made a contemptible bouquet. Trembling carpenter's hands, clumsy with fear, grasped God's son, slippery with blood. The baby's limbs helplessly waving as if falling through space. His face grimacing as he gasped in the cold and his cry pierced the night. End quote. Have you ever thought of the nativity as scandalous? Uh, we think of the cross as scandalous. But what about the incarnation? And again, uh, if, if, we, if we don't see it as scandalous, I think... We miss the point. The Son of God was born in the very place where livestock are born. It's scandalous because the very one who asked Job, you remember this question that was asked to Job? Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. The very one who asked that question is denied a room in some inn, and is born in a cattle stall. The very one who said to Job, where were you when I made clouds, the earth's garment, and thick darkness, its swaddling band? The one who swaddled the earth in thick darkness is now wrapped in strips of cloth himself. It, it is a mind-boggling event. Almighty God becoming a helpless child. And it's so easy for us to gloss over this, this whole scene. You know, our minds picture some Hallmark version of the nativity where there's this cozy little barn with clean, fresh hay and a perfectly sized manger that serves as a bassinet, and it's well lit by candles. And, and of course, we have that line from away in a manger. The cattle are lowing, the baby awakes, but little Lord Jesus, no crying he makes. You believe that? I've been told that if a baby isn't crying, it's bad news. It's so easy to sanitize this whole narrative. I mean, it, it, it's almost as if that statement by Stephen Mosley is, is scandalous to us because we could so easily fall into viewing Mary and Joseph are waiting in this cute little stable. 
She has her makeup on and candles lit, and then a stork just flies through the window and delivers a beautiful, smiling, content little boy. The issue is that we can easily lose the humanity of this moment. We've lost the sense that this was a a human birth with all its travail and pain and unhygienic nature. This birth was fully human. And again, if, if it was not, we have a serious problem. If the Lord Jesus was not fully human, we have a serious problem. The Heidelberg Catechism, question 16, asks, Why must Jesus Christ be a true and righteous man? The answer is that he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. And he must be a righteous man because uh, one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for the sin of others. You know, Jesus suffered the penalty of of sin in a human body. He had to be fully human so that he could identify with us and suffer in our place and sympathize with our weakness. The writer of Hebrews notes that Jesus Christ took on flesh and blood because we are flesh and blood. He had to be made like us in every respect so that he might become a merciful And faithful high priest to make propitiation for the sins of his people. An easy way I remember that word propitiation is thinking of a sponge. Just as a sponge can absorb spilled water. So Jesus fully absorbed the wrath of God due our sin in our place. And our only hope is in one who is fully human, yet without sin. We don't need to miss the importance of the humanity of this moment. So we can gloss over the nativity and can miss the humanity of the moment. um, But we can also lose an appreciation for the humiliation that Christ endured for us. I mean, the the humiliation of Christ didn't begin at his arrest. It, It didn't begin even with his public ministry and being rejected in his hometown. The humiliation of Jesus Christ begins here at birth. And and not only in God taking on flesh, I mean that's an unthinkable condescension in and of itself. Now add on top of that the conditions he was born into. And we know that this is something he did for his bride, the church. From heaven he came and sought her. And he did so for our sakes. He emptied himself of his glory and took upon himself the form of a servant 
not only in his life and death, but also in his conception and birth. J.C. Ryle comments saying, We see here the grace and condescension of Christ. Had he come to save mankind with royal majesty, surrounded by his Father's angels, it would have been an act of undeserved mercy. Had he chosen to dwell in a palace with power and great authority, we should have had reason enough to wonder. But to become poor as the very poorest of mankind and lowly as the very lowliest, this is a love that passeth knowledge. It is unspeakable and unsearchable. Never let us forget that through this humiliation, Jesus purchased for us a title of glory. Through his life of suffering, as well as his death, he has obtained eternal redemption for us. All through his life, he was poor for our sakes. From the hour of his birth to the hour of his death, and through his poverty, we are made rich. Ryle here is quoting from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 8, uh, verse 9, which says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might be rich. I think that would be a helpful thought to remember as we consider the nativity. That by his becoming son of man with us, we are made children of God with him. That by his descent to earth, he has prepared an ascent for us to heaven. That by taking on our mortality, he has conferred his immortality upon us. Uh, By accepting our weakness, he has strengthened us by his power. By receiving our poverty unto himself, he has transferred his wealth to us. And that by taking the weight of our sin upon himself, he has clothed us with his righteousness. That's, That's what we believe uh, that's, that's the grounding of our faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And, and yet I would in, encourage you that as we leave this place uh, to not uh, only remember who he is and what he has done for you, but also leave knowing that as his people, we are called to follow his example. And when we see the nativity and the condescension and the humiliation of Christ, we, we see something of what is required of us as Christians. We see how things operate in His kingdom. 
We saw this in the Beatitudes over the summer, and we also see it in the Nativity. In this kingdom, the first is last, and the last is first. In this kingdom, uh, rights and privileges are laid aside so that a brother or sister might be one. In this kingdom, it is more honored to take on the form of a servant rather than a master. And like our Lord, we are to go and bring relief to those who are needy. So those are a couple things to remember as you see various nativities through this season. Let's close in prayer. Father God, it is unthinkable that you would take on human flesh. That standing on the edge of heaven, looking down on your creation, you leapt and came past the sun, moon, and stars and entered into our world and did so in the humblest of circumstances. And you did so because of your love for your people. You did so because of a covenant that was made with God the Father before the foundation of the world. You did so because you purposed to love a people for yourself. And Father, I pray that in beholding this this plan, this action, that we would be mimickers, that we would mimic the uh, this wondrous action. Would, would we be those who give of ourselves and live uh, self-sacrificially and make room for others and enter into difficult situations so that we might come and bring help where it is needed, just as your Son did for us. We ask this in His name.